And Lord, I pray that that as we uh, examine what you have for us in our scripture tonight, Lord, that you would just anchor that truth so deeply in our hearts, Lord, that we will not be shaken no matter what comes our way, Lord, and that our gaze will be set on what is true and real and beautiful and glorious and that we would find great power in that. Help us to grasp that tonight, Lord. We need you to help us, and I pray this in your name. Amen. Okay, ladies, we are in the wonderful Advent season. It started Advent started Sunday. How many of you have your Christmas trees up already? Okay, a little more than half. Um, ask what? <laughs> Who's not going to put their tree up? Okay, then. Well, you know, there, there's so much beauty in this time of year, and you think about what the Christmas season means and, and what we do culturally. Uh, we think of all the decorations, the lights, the food, the music, the gifts, and so often at the center of it all is the Christmas tree. That, that's kind of the deal. Um, it's kind of the primary symbol of Christmas, And the way our children think about Christmas so often is what gifts are they going to get? You know, what do I want for Christmas? What's Santa going to bring? But I really want to challenge you, just like I challenged you two weeks ago about focusing on what we're really thankful for. I want to challenge you um, to fight, and it is a fight, for the true meaning of Christmas. Um, not only in your own heart, primarily in your own heart, but also as an outflow to those in your life, your family, your children, grandchildren, other people's children. The true meaning of Christmas is related to everything that we have been looking at in Romans. And so I want to read you um, something from, from Paul David Tripp, and I just love him. And, and this is what he says. He said... Uh, He's concerned that we help our children remember that while this wonderful holiday season is about a tree, it's not about the beautiful tree in your living room that you've so carefully decorated. From the moment of his first breath, the life of that baby in a manger was marching toward a tree. It would not be a tree of beauty or celebration, but a tree of sacrifice and death. It would not stand in someone's home as part of a seasonal tradition, but would be outside the city walls on a hill of execution. That baby wouldn't stand before his tree and smile at its beauty, but would be tortured by it, nailed to it among convicts. That tree on the hill was not a symbol of a season, but an instrument of judgment. On that seemingly hopeless hill, that tree of death gave life and hope to humanity. The Advent season tells a story that will take your breath away. It's a story about inescapable need. I want you to think about what we've been seeing in Romans. Inescapable need, a glorious incarnation, a substitutionary life, an atoning sacrifice, and a victorious resurrection. Only God could write such a story, and only God could complete the plot. It's a story meant to amaze us, humble us, capture us, rescue us, transform us, and cause us to live in wonder and worship. This story provides the only way you can make sense out of your identity and your true need. This story reveals where hope is to be found 
and points you to the meaning of your existence. And I'm going to conclude with some thoughts on that at the end. And I want us to think about, in the context of where we have been in Romans, and especially where we are in Romans 8. It's called the Great Eight for a lot of reasons. But we started in Romans 8 with there is now no condemnation. And remember, we can't appreciate that unless we understand and have already understood that we are all under the wrath of God and why there's condemnation. But it ends in nothing in all creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's how the end of the chapter. The power of all of this is in the Holy Spirit. And he has just exhorted us to put to death the misdeeds of the body, to kill sin in our flesh, and a battle that we talked about you're going to have to fight until the day you die. He has given us encouragement that we're adopted as God's children and that we're heirs of God and co-heirs of Christ because we are in Christ. And then we came to verse 17, which is the hinge in this chapter. It's the pivot point from being heirs that share in his suffering so that we can share in his glory. And we're going to be looking at suffering and glory tonight. Suffering is a part of life in this fallen world. And Paul is going to help us deal with that suffering so that we can persevere and not abandon our faith. Because, ladies, suffering is hard. It blinds us. It discourages us. It can deceive us. And Satan wants, us, wants to use it to make us fall. But God wants to use it to strengthen our faith, our relationship with him, and to wean us from the lesser pleasures of this world. So, fight for the true meaning, okay? Now, as we look at our verses tonight, and we start in verse 18, um, we're going to take a look at what he says. Paul says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us, or your translation may say, to us. That word can mean either, or, or both. And so we know that Paul could make this statement because if anybody knew about suffering, Paul knew about suffering. Um, I'm going to take you to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, and let's just be reminded about Paul's life, okay? Because when we read about his life, it gives validity to how he can make this statement. 2 Corinthians 11, starting in verse 23. He's talking about um, comparing himself to others. And he says, are they servants of Christ? I am out of my mind to talk like this. I am more. I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from the Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, in danger from false brothers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. 
I have known hunger and thirst and often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressures of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak and I do not feel weak? Who is led into sin and I do not inwardly burn? If I must boast, I will boast in the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, who is praised forever, knows I'm not lying. And so, Paul probably suffered more than anybody we will ever know. So, he understood suffering. At the same time, he also understood the glory. And I had you in your homework read 2 Corinthians 12, 1-10. And he says... Um, I must go on boasting, although there's nothing to be gained. I will go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. I know a man in Christ, and I told you most commentators believe this is Paul, who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. That would be the heaven where the presence of God is. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body... I do not know, oh, uh, where am I? Apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows, he repeats himself, was caught up to paradise. He heard inexpressible things, things that man is not permitted to tell. I will boast about a man like that, but I will not boast about myself except in my weakness. And so he says, to keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations, there was given me a thorn in my flesh a messenger of Satan, to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it from me, but he said, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, in insult, in hardship, in persecution, in difficulty, for when I am weak, I am strong. So in that whole context, we see Paul had experience with suffering, and he also had an amazing vision of heaven, and he never got over it, ladies. What he saw was so magnificent, it was inexpressible, and it was so great that he had to endure a thorn in the flesh to keep him humble from it. You would think that all those sufferings would keep him humble enough, and he wouldn't need the thorn. I don't know, it just came to me, but... That's how magnificent his vision was. And so when he says to us that our sufferings are not worth comparing, he knew exactly what he was talking about in a way that we are not going to know until the other side, but we can take his word for it. And that's why he is arguing that in this section on suffering. Okay? I want to give you a definition of suffering that I got from Elizabeth Elliot, and I want you to write this down, and I want you to take it and ponder it, okay? She said that suffering is having what you don't want and wanting what you don't have. Suffering is having what you don't want and wanting or wanting what you don't have. Having what you don't want or wanting what you don't have. And at first thought, we think of that as material things. But 
if your child has cancer, that's something you don't want to have in your life. It can look like a lot of different things. But at the root of it, 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 it's not being completely surrendered to whatever God has and being okay with it. That's the battle. That is the battle to let go, to open your hands and let go whatever it is and be willing to accept and take and have what God has given you. Because suffering is when we're wrestling with that, when we're wrestling with what either God has given us that we don't want or taken from us and not given what we do want. So these sufferings can be anything from cancer to criticism, physical, emotional, the battle within, the battle without. We live in a fallen world with fallen people, and we live in a fallen, decaying body. Therefore, suffering is very real. But Paul is going to give us some help here. First, he is reminding us that it's not forever. On the other side is glory, and it's a glory we cannot imagine. Now, I really like this definition of glory that John Piper gave. He says glory is overwhelming, all-satisfying beauty and greatness. Overwhelming, all-satisfying beauty and greatness. And we are made with beauty and greatness as a deep longing in our heart. That's why we love sunrises, we love sunsets, we love oceans, the Grand Canyon, the mountains in Colorado, whatever you want to say. There's something in us that likes to be dwarfed. We like to be dwarfed by beauty and greatness. God made us that way because he made us for him. And all of these are just a reflection and a whisper of the one true beauty and greatness who is God himself. And so even one of the prayers that Jesus prayed in the great, it's called the great high priestly prayer in John 17 I, I, I want to read this to you. Give me just a second. About glory, about not only seeing glory, but how it's going to be revealed to us and in us. And so as uh, in John 17, he's praying in verse 24, and he says, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and see my glory. The glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. And so Jesus is praying what's good for us. And how wonderful that he is praying that we would be able to see and participate in his glory. And Paul is telling us that that is what's going to happen. And so the reality is that while we live here, I mean, we have these great hopes and promises, but while we live here, there's suffering. So we've got to have a theology and a framework to, to not only navigate suffering, but to have it in the right context. And so he's giving us this reminder that it's not forever, and now he's going to give us like a global perspective on suffering. Because a lot of times when things happen to you, and there's this thing in human nature that we, we love to have pity parties. And when we feel like we're the only one, or why is this happening to me? Does God not love me and everybody else? I mean, do you ever say everybody else doing this and not me? I mean, what is that thing? It's in our, our fallen human nature that does that. 
So one thing that helps us, first of all, is that it's not forever. And second of all, that there's a reality in suffering and it's global. And that's where he's going right now. It's not just us. It's not just because of God doesn't care for us and poor pitiful me. Okay. Um, So let's read. Let me see. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, or yours may say futility, not by its own choice, but by the will of one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not have, we wait for it patiently. So we see a global perspective that it's not just things that happen in our life. It's all of creation that has been subjected. Okay? Um, let's go to 2 Corinthians four sixteen and 17. 2 Corinthians four sixteen and 17. I think this was in your homework. And it, it's, a, it's a parallel passage to what we're talking about here. He says, Therefore... We do not lose heart. And and that's what Paul's trying to do. He is trying to strengthen us in this passage so that we don't lose heart as we walk through this life and the difficulties and things come. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. Now, that's, that's the body and the spirit the two separate things that we've seen. Yes, we are renewed. Yes, we are made new in our spirit, but we're still in this mortal body. For our light and momentary troubles, light and momentary, are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. You see, Paul's perspective is always that comparison. He never got over that vision of heaven. So, what do we do? We fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. I love that passage so much. Um, it, it has been an anchor for my soul in, in difficult seasons. And so, the truth, our first truth tonight is this. Our suffering is temporary, but our glory will be eternal. Our suffering is temporary, but our glory will be eternal. Our suffering is temporary, but our glory will be eternal. Knowing this will help you endure. It will give you strength. Where you place your eyes and your mind is the key. You have to set your gaze on what is unseen. Okay? You look at Christ, you look at your hope. He is our hope. So let me ask you, what suffering are you facing? And how are you responding? 
Where are you setting your gaze and your mind? On the temporal or on the eternal? And that takes us to our next truth. Having an eternal perspective is the key to living victoriously in this life. Having an eternal perspective is key or the key to living victoriously in this life. Having an eternal perspective is key to living victoriously in this life. And where do you get an eternal perspective? In the Word. The only place we can get it. Because we live in the temporal. We can't gaze at what's around us to get an eternal perspective. We have to go to the Word. Creation is eagerly waiting, it says. That, that, that's a picture of waiting on tiptoes for something. For the sons of God to be revealed. In this present age, in this world, it is unable to distinguish absolutely between true believers and unbelievers. At the appointed time, God is going to reveal those that are truly his. Let me read you Colossians, a verse from Colossians. It says, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So there is going to be a revealing of those that are truly his. And creation, it says, was subjected, it received this, it was subjected to futility or frustration by the will of the one who subjected it in hope. Now, there's, a, there's been different views on who is the one that subjected creation. Was it Adam when he sinned? Was it Satan? But there's a, a, a clue there. Adam or Satan is not going to subject creation in hope. Who's the only one that can do something with hope? God. God is the one. That was part of the curse. You went back to Genesis 3. After the sin, there was the curse. We see this in creation uh, with the second law, in part of the second law of thermodynamics, entropy, where every closed system left to itself moves from order to disorder. And I mean, all you have to do is look at your, my house to see that. If I don't tend to it and exert energy upon it, it moves to disorder. It does not get more orderly. I don't know. Anybody in here have that experience? Your house gets more orderly? No, you're, you have the same issue. You look, you look at a home that's in great condition, and people move out, and nobody does anything, and what happens? Disorder. It's amazing. It, it is a law that we see. Um, three, four. Sorry, three, four. God put the natural world, and, th and this is an interesting thought for one purpose of that. God put the natural world under a curse so that the physical horrors of that curse, disease, death, earthquakes, tornadoes, tsunamis, would be a vivid picture, a parable of the horrible, the horrors of sin, moral sin. And so when we look at these things, what? Yes. God put the natural world under a curse so that the physical horrors of that curse, such as disease, death, earthquakes, tornadoes, would become a picture, a vivid picture, a parable of the horrors of moral sin. They're a representation. They're a result of it, but they're a reminder because we can have a tendency to not think much about our sin. 
But when you look at devastation and suffering and all of this, it should take your mind back to what happened in the fall and how serious sin is to God. Um, God did it. The curse where creation was affected, though, it says he did it in hope because God's plan is one day creation itself is going to be freed just as the children of God are set free. We're going to be set free. We're set free in our spirit, but we're going to be set free in our, in our mortal bodies. And creation itself is going to be set free as well. Nature's destiny is inseparably linked to man's. So let me read you some verses that, that deal with that. 1 Corinthians 15, starting in 51. I'm going to start with 1 Corinthians 15. 51 through 54. It's talking about how we are going to be set free and changed. Listen, I will tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, the last trumpet, the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. That's our mortal bodies. For the perishable must clothe itself with imperishable and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. And that's just a beautiful thing uh, to see that. And then we also see in Revelation 21, that's, that's what's going to happen to us and our bodies being set free. And then in creation, in Revelation 21, verse 1 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And I see the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, this is what is the greatest. Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. And they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, mourning, crying, or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who sat on the throne said, I am making everything new. What a beautiful picture. Write this down, for these are the words of the one who is trustworthy and true. But right now, we're not there yet. That is our hope. We're going to be set free, this body that just we have to battle with our sin nature still, that, uh, that dwells in just our mortal flesh at times, and then creation itself is going to be set free. But for now, it groans. Creation groans, we see, and we groan. That word groan has to do with being compressed or restricted, the pressure, internal, just a pressure. And it says that we who have the first fruits of the Spirit, and, and part of the thing is we groan because we have the Spirit and we know what we want to do. We know we have a taste of a relationship with God, and yet we're pressed with our body. We cannot be all that we want to be. And so we groan in that, you know, um, and that's a piece of it for us. It speaks of what we saw in Romans 7, that ongoing battle with our flesh. 
And when we have the full redemption of our bodies, when we step into that full experience of being a daughter of God, we wait for that. We want that. I want to be free to not disappoint God. I want to be free to not be a failure to myself. I look forward to that more than anything, okay? But here's the other point. Back in Romans, in verse 22, and I love this point. I got this from, from John Piper, and it really, it really spoke to me. It says, we groan. The whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right into the present time. So let's imagine that you're in a hospital for something, and you hear a woman in the next room or down the hall groaning and crying out in pain. Now, does it make any difference to you how you view that groans, those groans and that cries if you're in an oncology unit or a maternity ward? How would you interpret those cries? If you're on the oncology unit, it's, it's basically pain and suffering that's probably going to end in death. But if you hear those groans and tr- cries, which I've heard them before in the maternity ward, or whatever you call it now, floor, wh- what's different in that? Yes, you know there's hope. You know there's new birth. And so I love that vision of how we groan, but we groan in hope. Because it's difficult, but it's not for nothing, to use a double negative. It's not for nothing. Yes, it's doing something. It's producing an eternal weight of glory that we saw in the other verse. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Therefore, there's, there's such a strength in that. It doesn't mean that you're still not suffering. But there's hope. You know that it's doing something. And I love that. I love that analogy. They're bearable because they are doing something. They're bringing life, not death, eternal life. And verse 24 speaks of that hope. Um, Hope in Scripture is certainty. I want you to get that. The word hope in Scripture means certainty. Because the hope that God gives is based on who he is and his character and his promises. And they are certain. They are certain. And then verse 25, we see, for, um, but if we hope for what we do not have, we wait for it patiently. So in 23, it says we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons. Now, granted, and redemption of our bodies. We're already adopted. We already are redeemed, but our bodies are not. There's a fuller experience of adoption, and there's a redemption of our bodies. So there's yes and not yet. Already, but not yet. So I want to make that point. But it says, how are we to wait? How are we to wait? Verse 23, we are to wait eagerly for our adoption. Not loving this life too much, because we're eager for that. When we love this life too much, we're not eager for what God's going to do on the other side. And, and ladies, we live in a pretty affluent country, and a lot of times it dulls our appetite for the things of God. But we are also to wait patiently, which means not hating this life too much. So those two words remind us that in the meantime, we are not to love this life too much nor hate it too much. 
The key is to love God and hate sin. To love God and hate sin. And so, as we think about hope and and um, the first fruit, well, let me go back to the first fruits of the Spirit. I'm not going to read all these verses, but I want to make this point. We have the first fruits of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a seal or a pledge. I think I gave you all those verses. Did you all do those verses in your homework or not about the Holy Spirit being a seal and a pledge? Uh, 2 Corinthians 1, 21 and 22, and Ephesians 1, 13. Um, in the Spirit, God isn't just promising our final inheritance. He's giving us a foretaste of it. So we have the Holy Spirit living in us. It, it's like a deposit, like when you put earnest money down on a house. That money already goes towards the house, but you're making a pledge. But it's already paying on the house. Well, that is what it's like to have the Holy Spirit. He is a seal, one of those verses said. And in, in the old days, a seal on a document guaranteed. It showed um, ownership. A seal on something showed ownership. And a seal also, even today, we think of a seal as like on a package to protect from tampering. The Holy Spirit is there for our protection as well, to prevent tampering from Satan. So God has given us the Holy Spirit for very important reasons, okay? And then, as we go through, we are to live in hope. And I want to read you this. When we relish the hope of the glory of God, we don't yield to the sinful pleasures of the moment. We're not suckered in by advertising that says the one with the most toys wins. We don't devote our best energies to laying up treasures on earth. We don't dream our most exciting dreams about accomplishments and relationships that are going to perish. We don't fret over what life fails to give us, like marriage or wealth or health or fame. Instead, we revel in the wonder that the owner and the ruler of the universe loves us and has destined us for glory and is working infallibly to bring us to his eternal kingdom. And we live to meet the needs of others because God is meeting our needs. And we love our enemies and we do good and bless those that curse us because our reward is heaven is great. And we're not enslaved to the petty pleasures that come from returning evil for evil. All this flows from our unshakable hope. That truth makes you free, free from the short, shallow, stupid, suicidal pleasures of sin. You are free to live for the glory of God. That is what Paul is trying to do for us here, to set us free from that and give us a hope to not just survive suffering, but to do it in a way that brings glory to God. So, now he's going to go in 26 and 27 and give us another help. In the same way, this first fruits of the Spirit, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Now, he's given us strength, but Paul knows that we are still weak. It's hard. Remember that whole passage, how he gloried in his weakness? He knew weakness. He felt his weakness, but he saw it with the right perspective. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. 
And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. So this next help is how the Spirit helps us in prayer. As we struggle with suffering and we have weakness, a lot of times the struggle is how do you pray? Do you pray to be delivered from the suffering or do you pray to endure the suffering? It's a difficulty sometimes to know. Um, But we can trust the Holy Spirit is going to intercede for us in accordance with God's will. This can happen for a lot of people when either they're facing end of life or maybe a loved one. Do you pray for healing or do you pray for mercy to die well? It's difficult to know sometimes how to pray. We can't always know and we can't always know the right words, but we don't have to. We just have to have a heart that is surrendered to God's will and a desire for his glory. We have to have open hands for whatever God has. One pastor stated that a real problem with the faith tradition that teaches God wants everyone to be healed and if you have enough faith, you're going to be healed is that these people have no framework for dying well. They face their own guilt of not having enough faith whenever they're facing their imminent death. God wants us to have all the tools that we need to live for him victoriously in this fallen world. you got to know that there's going to be suffering, but at the same time there is hope. There is glory on the other side that's not even, our suffering's not even worth comparing to that. The Holy Spirit helps us as we navigate it. But in the end, what God really wants in all of this for us with the hope of the new body and the resurrection and all of these things is that therefore you will stand firm and always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know your labor is not in vain. He doesn't want us to just sit on the couch and try to endure it. He wants us to stand firm but to continue to give yourself fully to the work of the Lord. The way you stand firm is to set your gaze on the hope ahead. Quit looking for joy and satisfaction in the things of this world and to live with the true story in mind. Um, Let me read you the end of this thing about Advent. Okay, there's, there's no problem with seasonal stories of sleds, snowmen, gifts, and goodies. But what I'm concerned about is that every Advent, our children are told a false story. This false rendition of the Christmas story puts human pleasure at the center. It tells our children to look for life in the creation rather than the creator. It tells them lies about who they are and what they need. It presents a world that needs no tree of sacrifice, no Messiah lamb, and no life-giving resurrection. This story forgets that the world our children live in and that we live in, ladies, is miserably broken. It groans waiting for redemption. This story neglects to tell our children that they're in grave danger themselves because of the sin that lives inside of them. And it surely doesn't tell them they were created to intentionally surrender their lives to a greater purpose, a greater plan, which is the glory of God. So, start preparing your children, and I would say yourself, early and often for the collision of stories that this season has become. 
It's a collision of stories. I found that collision when I went to Hobby Lobby looking for some Christmas decorations for work that have the true meaning of Christmas. Hobby Lobby, Christian group, one aisle, half of an aisle that had the manger scene and things like that. All those other aisles, and there's nothing wrong with that, full of everything else, ladies. A half of an aisle. That's the collision. That's the collision of stories. Tell them the story of Jesus again and again. Tell them the bad news of why he had to come because it's only then they'll understand and celebrate what is coming accomplished on their behalf. Tell them the best gift ever given was the gift of Jesus because in that gift we're given everything that we need. Make your Advent conversation about a tree but not the one in your living room. Talk about how that baby in a manger came not to decorate a tree, but hang on it for their salvation. Remind them that in a world darkened by sin, the tree of sacrifice and salvation shines as a light of eternal hope that will never go out. He is the ultimate gift. The true gift of the gospel is God himself, beheld in his glory Enjoyed because of his beauty, treasured because of his worth, and reflected because we are being conformed to the image of his son. So we have the tree and we have the true gift. So fight for that in the collision of stories because it is what really gives meaning and strength and hope to our lives.